Karen McElrath, I will be your moderator today. This event will be recorded by Shaw TV and available on SACPA's website and later on YouTube. I would like to begin with a few housekeeping points. Please remember to turn off your cell phones and put $11 to cover lunch in the basket on your table. Please have someone from your table count the money prior to collection. We will be starting with Chelsea's half an hour presentation, followed by half an hour of lunch and half an hour question period wrapping up at 1.30. I would like to introduce Chelsea Schubert who is presenting on the topic, bees and pollinators. Are they essential to our food supply? Pollinators are insects and animals that carry pollen from one plant to another. These include honeybees, wild bees, wasps, butterflies, moths, ants, birds, and more. Chelsea is a beekeeper who has kept honeybees commercially and recreationally with her husband Jeff for the past eight years. She completed her Bee Master's certification through the BC Ministry of Agriculture in 2012. I would like to thank Shaw TV who broadcasts SACPA sessions and later makes them available on YouTube for viewing. CKXU FM Radio 88.3 and all other media that cover SACPA events. Country Kitchen Catering for the friendly service and wonderful lunch. The University of Lethbridge for the ongoing support. Welcome Chelsea. to the mic, Annalise says. All right. Okay, so we couldn't get presenter view working on here, so I got my uh, cell phone going. But here's the topic that I've got up here today. Do we need to save the bees? Um, and the, the part about do we need to save the bees, we're going to answer in one slide, and then we're going to talk about, well, you'll see when we get there. Let's talk, let's get, let's get to it. Okay, here, here's the question of the day. Are bees essential to our food supply? Did anybody come here today not knowing the answer to this question? You all came still, which is really great. Um, but the answer to this is uh, sort of, sort of. Out of, out of 100 uh, of our most essential plant foods that humans eat, 71 of those plants need bees of some kind to be pollinated. So that's a lot of plants. That's a huge number of the plants that we eat. Um, will the human species starve without, without honey, without bee pollination? That's a really impossible question to answer, right? That's really impossible. The types of foods that would be left um, if there was no uh, pollinators would be some of our, our really big, important um, foods that we eat all over the world. A lot of our grains don't need pollination. Rice doesn't need pollination. Soybeans don't need pollination, corn, wheat, those all would manage just fine without pollinators. However, is it really fair to say if all of the pollinators were gone tomorrow that really there would be no impact on our food system or on biodiversity? Of course not. We know the answer to that, right? So we'll talk about that in a minute. More importantly though, I don't think life would be worth living with the food that would be left remaining. We wouldn't have all of our melons. We wouldn't have most of our berries, my very favorite blueberries. Those would be, those would be gone. Uh, avocados, right? No more avocados or almonds or a lot of our other nuts wouldn't be able to, to reproduce um, and fruit. No cherries, no peaches, etc. 
as I say, life, life would just not be, be worth facing with uh, corn and beets and onions. Um, coffee does a lot better with pollination. Uh, I think we probably could manage with some hand pollination, but you know, again, could we drink the vast quantities of, of coffee that we consume? No, we could not. The economic impact of pollination in the United States is estimated to be $3 billion a year. I hate the statistic. It really, it really uh, minimizes what, what bees are uh, and the importance of them to a number. Um, but that means something to a lot of people, and $3 billion is, helps us put into context the scale of their importance. On this planet, we have two amazing frontiers of innovation. One is technology and the other one is nature and wilderness. And one of those two is increasing and growing at a really exponential rate, and one of those is declining. So in my opinion, while bees are essential, I think, to our quality of life and to the, the yields of our, our major crops and to the uh, quality of our, of our crops, more important to me is uh, the biodiversity component of having them as part of our world. And I can't wait to show you a little bit about why you should love them just because they are so cool. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, besides just our food supply, 70% of all flowering plants, any plant that flowers, needs bees to be pollinated. So can you imagine the impact on our biodiversity if we lost that pollination? And again, that's regardless of whether those plants provide something of economic uh, or nutritional value to us, just imagine the landscape with 70% fewer flowering plants. Okay. Okay, here's your pop quiz. We're going to get to this bright and early. Save the bees pop quiz. If, if you need to close your eyes to do this that's, this, that's okay. Think in your mind of what you've heard of, of the bees that we need to save. Just picture, bring a picture to your mind of what bees need saving. Maybe, maybe this is what you imagined. That is a, a female honeybee. Maybe you didn't get quite that far. Maybe you just have kind of a vague, cartoony image. The Cheerios bee. Maybe you, you, there's some legs involved, but mostly you're thinking about this product, this delicious product, this honey. Maybe, maybe this is it. This is as far as we, as we can get with really identifying these guys. Or maybe it's Barney. Okay, so all of these are, all of these are honeybees. Uh, in fact, in North America, honeybees are a European species that are introduced. I won't use the word invasive. Um, honeybees. Uh, we have not conclusively found yet that honeybees displace other species per se. There is some evidence to suggest that they do compete pretty heavily for food resources with native bees, but honeybees themselves are not, are not a native species here, um, which some people are, are surprised to know about. Um, in fact, we have 21,000 species of bees, of various kinds of bees worldwide. Honeybees are or European honeybees are only one of those species. About 2,800 of those collect pollen, which means that they are pollinators. 2,800 species of pollinating bees. Okay, 
Now we're going to talk about some of these bees that I think are the ones that actually need saving. Hey. This is a halictid bee, um, which, is a, which is a sweat bee. Um, they are known for that because they have been known to land on people and drink their sweat. Um, we're not, as far as I know, we're not totally sure why. It might be because of minerals, um, but it's something that they do. They're very small. As you can see, it's extremely bristly, um, and they're one of the more common bees in Alberta, actually. Um, they, as it says here, they usually live in the ground and are solitary, and they do eat nectar and pollen, which means they are a pollinator. Look at these gorgeous guys. These are digger bees, and they are usually big and fuzzy, but not as round as bumblebees. They are again solitary. They're not swarming. They're not living in big colonies. They're nesting in the ground, and their buzz is often a high-pitched whine and they can hover like a helicopter to feed on flowers. And they're gorgeous, right? Aren't they so, they're like a teddy bear. Okay, minor bees. I couldn't find a whole lot of information on these, but these guys are pretty short-lived. They come out in the spring, they live in the ground, they have a black abdomen. All of these bees I'm showing you are capable of stinging, but they usually don't, just like honeybees and also just like wasps, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay, everybody's favorite. If you, if you love bumblebees as much as I do, you should come to the next Lethbridge Bee Enthusiasts talk because we are having a bumblebee pro come out and talk to us about bumblebee nesting boxes. So bumblebees, there are 500 species worldwide of bumblebees. Uh, there are about 50 in North America and 21 in Alberta, 21 species of bumblebees. Everybody thinks, oh, I know what a bumblebee is. Could you pick out 21 different kinds of bumblebees? Isn't that amazing? So as it says up there, if it's biggish, roundish, and fuzzy, it's a bumblebee, unless otherwise identified. And that is an official quote from Nature Alberta. So bumblebees, uh, they live in small colonies, depending on, on the type of bumblebee. They could be in the ground, or in a tree, um, or a rock pile. Um, Oh, I could really go on about bumblebees, and I'm going to for a minute, because they are so cool. The queen bumblebee is amazing, more amazing than queen honeybees, by a long shot. The queen bumblebee is the only one in the colony that survives the winter. Unlike honeybee colonies, where the queen needs a bunch of workers to stay alive with her to keep her going, right? She needs to be fed and cleaned and looked after, not the queen bumblebee. She is an independent woman. She survives over the winter, her first job in the spring. You'll see uh, queen bumblebees early in the spring flying low, trying to find their nesting site. She finds a new nest, makes it nice and cozy, uh, gets a little bit of, of food going, and starts laying eggs. And she rears those first eggs on her own. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, how she, that's how she does it. Queen honeybees are very different. They have workers that look after a lot of that. They have workers that do all the food foraging, that do all the child rearing, uh, and she just goes around laying eggs over and over. That's all she has to do. Queen bumblebees are really amazing. The other really interesting thing about bumblebees is they have an exceptionally short foraging distance, so they don't fly very far from where they are nested. Uh, every year I have people say to me, I've seen less bumblebees this year. I don't know what's going on. 
Well, it just might be that last year you were really lucky to have bumblebees nesting really nearby. And this year you didn't get lucky and they're not traveling a huge distance to come and visit your flowers. So if you see them in your yard, lucky you, you've got a bumblebee colony living nearby. That's pretty cool and pretty special. The other really cool thing about bumblebees is that they do a type of pollination called buzz pollination. So you may know that a lot of plants and bugs, pollinators, uh, co-evolved uh, to be able to work together, right? In the most beneficial way. Some flowers are designed to be buzz pollinated and that's what bumblebees can do. So buzz pollination uh, is where the flower is typically long. Um, blueberry, blueberry flowers are a good example of this as are tomato flowers. What they want the bug to do is to grab hold of the flower and not get its head all in there, just start shaking the heck out of it until the pollen falls off onto the abdomen of that pollinator. And bumblebees are fabulous buzz pollinators. So that's why we say that they can be a more efficient pollinator of certain crops, because they know how to do it. They know how to operate those flowers. So that's a little about this amazing creature. Okay, this is another really important one here in Alberta, a commercially important one in Alberta. This is the leafcutter bee. And you may have seen holes in your rose leaves uh, or some other plants and flowers. And that is because of our little friend, the leafcutter bee. These are quite small. They are an introduced species, uh, species here in Alberta. Um, and they actually were responsible for saving our alfalfa industry in the 1930s. Um, I am actually not sure whether we have any wild species of these in Alberta, um, but they are a commercially important um, critter here in this province. Okay, you might have heard of these guys before too. These are mason bees. And mason bees are really helpful and really important in orchard pollination. Um, they're very efficient pollinators of orchard fruits. Um, they're, they're really little. Um, they're solitary as well. They live between cracks and stones, and they typically use mud in the construction of their nests. Uh, in this picture on the left, uh, you've got um, an orchard mason bee, and on the right, you've got red mason bees. Um, I don't know for sure about orchard mason bees in Lethbridge. Somebody maybe can tell me, um, but my husband and I have seen red mason bees here uh, living wild in some cracks and rocks. They're really cute. They look like teeny red honeybees. They're solitary, again, another one that's non-aggressive, but is capable of stinging if you're picking it up and, and squishing it. Okay. All right, so these are the bees that in my estimation, we need to be paying attention to. Honeybees, because of their commercial importance, they have a lot of attention, and that also means a lot of money that's being spent on making sure they are looked after. There are some major threats, definitely, to honeybees, but because of their commercial importance, the layperson, you and I, in my opinion, don't need to worry so much. Again, as a non-native species, the commercial industries that rely on honeybees are gonna look after them. And if they can't do it, I assure you that we can't do it. So, we can talk about this more in Q&A or after the presentation, but I get sent to our Lethbridge Bee Enthusiasts Facebook page regularly, petitions about banning pesticides and so on. Uh, I'm not against banning pesticides, 
but I will say that a lot of the companies that are involved in commercial agriculture, they are not anti-honeybee. They are very interested in making sure the species continues. Um, they are not necessarily, however, as focused on wild bees. And that's where I think that we, as regular citizens and people interested in nature and the continuation of biodiversity, that's where I think we have a role to play in some of these bees that are less com commercially important and therefore aren't going to have the big bucks spent on making sure that they're looked after. Okay, so what does that mean? What would a bee paradise mean? What would that look like? got flowers here that's foreshadowing right but before we even get to the actual physical landscape there's some things that we need to think about about our own selves about some introspection that we need to do if we were to have a really viable bee paradise so here's here's the five things that I think would make Lethbridge a bee paradise the first one is if people were to have a curiosity and an interest in bees I'm the fill-in speaker here today. That's fine, that's good. Uh, I give speeches, uh, presentations, other places too. And look, we've got, a, we've got a full room of a captive audience who all have to listen to me today talk about this. To me that says though, that there is some of this going on, this latent curiosity about bees. It's not just their commercial uh, value that we care about, there is something else there that's intriguing to us. So if, if we were to have a bee paradise, fostering that curiosity would be number one on my list. Number two is that people would have a realistic and proportionate sense of caution. Um, what we have right now is a, a totally overblown sense of fear when it comes to stinging insects, right? And then we pass that on to our children. Um, and that's, that's not gonna make a bee paradise. We, we need to have a realistic, proportionate sense of caution. We'll talk about that. We would need to have a lot more flowering plants. So flowers produce pollen, which is a protein source, and nectar, which is a carbohydrate, a sugar source, right? That's the one that gets turned into honey um, in honeybees, with honeybees. Um, so flowers are the food source for, for wild and uh, introduced or managed bees. Um, and it's often the limiting factor for these populations. It's usually not habitat, it's usually food. So we're gonna need a lot more flowers. Uh, I don't know, this one, might, this one may or may not go over very well, but we're probably going to need less lawn. We probably need less lawn. We'll talk about that too. And we're going to need some more wild spaces, even if they're small. We have a lot of our, our landscape now that is taken up by agriculture or that's taken up by our, our purposes, right? Our homes and our businesses and, and so on. Um, it's, it's all about can we plan to have a few more wild spaces even, even amongst those. Okay, people have a curiosity and an interest in bees. There's this great term that I've learned in the past year and it's called insect literacy, right? We, we've, all now, we've all by now heard about physical literacy, right? We need kids to learn to use their bodies in space and, and be able to manage their, their physical selves. Well, what about all of us uh, being able to be curious and be interested in bugs, right? and what they have going on and what those little guys are doing down there. So this is really all about going back to our natural childhood curiosity and just taking a closer look at these, right? Maybe just following a, a bee and just watching it go from flower to flower. So 
Uh, really, that's all that this means to me. Hone your observation skills. Pay closer attention. Do you really know, uh, you know what those markings on that bumblebee look like? Maybe you have a sense, oh, I'm pretty sure that's a bumblebee. Well, what kind maybe is it? Learn how to take great pictures of small things. Our phone technology is getting better all the time in terms of the camera ca capabilities on it. Learn about what it means to take pictures of really small things and see smaller details. Maybe consider becoming a citizen scientist. There's a fabulous website called bumblebeewatch.org and they are really trying to get a sense of the, the spread and the population size of the different bumblebee species because that's not something that's being researched right at, at all. We have a bit of a sense. Last year you may have heard that the rusty patch bumblebee um, in the US was put on the endangered species list and in Hawaii they had seven species of wild bees that were put on the endangered list as well. We don't really have a good sense of these populations. It isn't really um, properly government mandated to do an inventory of these bugs because they don't matter to us commercially. So it's up to us, right, to keep an eye on that. Okay, this one's getting this little hippie, hippie one here, but cultivate feelings of gratitude toward other living things, whether they do anything for us or not, right? If we are gonna preserve wild spaces and we are gonna preserve biodiversity, we're gonna have to start getting a little happy about these things that we don't know if they do anything for us. And maybe even ones that do something that we don't like, that's annoying, right? There's lots of bugs that we think are annoying or that we avoid. Maybe we gotta learn to cultivate a little bit of gratitude around those guys too. I'm working on this still. Just bear with me on that. We'll get to it again in a second. And most importantly, I think is, set an example of curiosity for children. If you have any kids in your life even if you can't muster the curiosity to care about bugs, pretend, right? Just fake it. Um, you, you pretend that they're great artists, just pretend that you are not afraid of the bugs and that you think the bugs are cool, right? We can do that. Okay, people having a realistic proportionate sense of caution. I see this stuff on the internet all the time. You guys have seen it too, right? The bees are the good guys and the wasps, wasps are evil. I picked one that didn't have any bad words on it, just for, just for you guys. Um, no, this isn't right, this isn't good. This is really counter to what I was just saying about having gratitude for things, whether or not they are, are good for us. Um, I, I always like to say 10 to 15% of human bites can become seriously infected, and yet we still allow humans into our homes, right? That's a way, way higher proportion uh, uh, of, of, of deadly insect stings or bites. Um, sometimes as beekeepers, like I say, we have a tendency to say, oh, you don't have to worry about bees. Bees are much nicer than wasps. We have to cut that out. We have to stop doing that. Wasps themselves also don't intend to be aggressive. They're not stinging you because they hate you, right? It's just they think you've brought their favorite foods to them and that you're going to share, and now you're getting mad at them and swatting at them, right? They're just a little confused about what's going on here. Honeybees typically leave us alone because their favorite foods are flowers, whereas wasps like the foods that we like. So when we bring that all out on a picnic, the wasps are gonna come around. The honeybees won't. They might think you're a tree, they might land on you for a second to get warm, um, but they're not interested in what you're eating and they're not flying anywhere around your food. So 
the other part I want to talk briefly about, about a proportionate sense of caution. I hear people all the time who have bee sting allergies, right? We're allergic to them. We have to avoid them. We have to get away from them. We have to kill them if they're near us. The statistic that I had previously been working with was that 3% of all people have a serious, deadly bee sting allergy. In fact, it's probably less than 1% that have a deadly bee sting allergy. All of us, it's a common and normal reaction that you get stung and the area swells. In fact, your whole limb may swell. What's a deadly reaction, of course, is you get stung on your hand and your throat swells and closes, right? That's the, that's the EpiPen type of reaction. The swelling of the arm is annoying, but really, it's worse for the bee, right? We all know what happened to that bee. She is toast. She is dead. So they're not doing that just for fun. Um, and so that's where we get into that realistic, proportionate sense of, of caution, right? Okay. Okay, next one is about lawn. What you see, oh, my formatting's a little messed up, sorry. What you see and what a bee sees, right, when they're looking out at your lawn. Okay, so what would it mean to make a lot less lawn? Make your flower beds a little bit bigger, right? We don't have to go all the way in this year. I'm not asking you to rototill your entire lawn this season. Maybe, maybe grow your flower beds by six inches this year. I think that's, that's realistic. Consider adding some shrubs and trees. Those are low maintenance. You don't have to do too much once those guys are established. Um, fruits like raspberries and saskatoons are bee magnets and they both grow really well here. Consider lawn alternatives. Consider your neighbors, right, and their goodwill as well. Like maybe we don't all want to be planting clover, but who knows? Maybe there's a few pioneers in this audience that will convert their lawns to clover this year, and then by next year it won't be such a, a horrible, horrible thing to do. Who knows? Don't work so hard to get rid of all the weeds, right? We probably all don't need to use quite as many chemicals as we do just to have a pretty lawn. Um, fertilizer, uh, particularly for your flowering plants, is one thing, but getting this golf green, golf green lawn definitely has an impact, right? Okay. Next thing we would need is a lot more flowering plants. How could we really realistically get to having a lot more flowering plants? Consider researching and planting one more native plant uh, this year. Just one. That would, be a, that would be a big help. Native plants for native bees is what we say, right? That's the best plants for, for our, our wild, wild bee species. Consider having something that's blooming from right through from early spring until fall. If you're noticing a gap in your flowers over the, over the season, consider trying to find something that will fill that gap so you've got something going continuously for the whole season. Choose varieties that are pollinator friendly. So for example, don't buy the sunflowers that say pollen free, right? That is also a desert for, for these bugs. Herbs are a really easy one. Whenever people say, well, what could I plant? I don't really want to give up my garden. Plant some thyme or plant some mint. Um, those uh, oregano chives, those are all really great bee, bee plants as well. Be really careful about wildflower blends. I think we, a lot of us have heard that warning by now. A lot of the flowers in wildflower blends are not um, adapted to our area, so they're not going to grow very well, or they may even have invasive species in them, right? So you're better off researching the plants properly and whenever you can, picking ones that are adapted to our area. Okay, just got a couple more minutes. So we're gonna quickly go through a couple of these. Um, this, is, this is yarrow, that's a, that's a native species that is great for wild bees. Um, it grows really well. 
comes in different colors. And then sunflowers is always an easy one. So if you remember two plants today, there's tons more, um, and I can tell you more about them, or you can come out to CD Saturday. I'll leave the date up at the end um, and pick up some seeds. But sunflowers and yarrow. There's a native and a, and a non-native that are great for bees. All right, more wild spaces. More wild spaces. So uh, we, don't, we don't have to leave all of our dandelions and weeds and horrible things. I'm not necessarily saying just leave untended, disturbed land. Um, the, the parks model of, of cultivating wild spaces that are appropriate is a great way to go about things. But basically the idea being leave part of your yard alone, right? Designate a corner that you're just not going to groom. Just let it be and just see what wild stuff goes on there. See what interactions happen. Let that be your, let that be your classroom, right? That you go and learn. Um, if it's driving you totally nuts to leave that corner untended, can you disguise it or screen it with a trellis or a big planter? and just leave that part behind it free. A few bare patches of dirt is just fine too. Um, I don't have time to tell you all about butterflies and, and puddling, but um, consider helping preserve and protect other bigger, wilder spaces too, right? We have stories come up in the news about, uh, about conservation. Consider that we need those bigger spaces too, right? Um, optionally, you can make dedicated habitats if you want. But this is last on my list because it's the least important. We don't need to all become beekeepers to save the bees. We really don't. We have, we have a lot of beekeepers, and if you're really interested and want to be a good beekeeper, absolutely, it's a cool hobby to get into, and I can tell you more about that. But we don't all need to do this. These bee hotels that we've seen are really trendy and really cool. You certainly could do this, but again, this isn't a critical step. They're quite capable of making their own homes if we leave some, some bare spots. I'm gonna leave this upcoming events up here for now. These are some of the things that are uh, on the go if you're interested in learning more and staying in touch. Thank you, Chelsea.